This is the show for those who want to live strong in business, life, and family. Welcome to the Warrior Her Podcast. To the Warrior Her podcast. We are here today with Victoria Jen Rodriguez. She's the founder and CEO of VJR Enterprises, which is a consulting company dedicated to elevating, enriching, and empowering people to become the best versions of themselves. She's been a leadership strategist and brand consultant for 15 years, over 15 years, shifting mindsets from I can't, I'm too scared, to I can and I will. Victoria Jen is also the president and founder of the Female Collaborative, a global network for progressive women focused on revolutionizing the way women work and do business together, recently recognized by Forbes. She's also the host of widely popular IGTV series, Women Who Roar, that has garnered over 4 million downloads. Past guests have included Soledad O'Brien, Susie Orman, Rosanna Scotto, Swin Cash, and other female icons. Given her passion for diversity and inclusion, she launched her own show, Victoria Gen TV, on YouTube, highlighting stories of professionals of color who have achieved success by remaining authentically true to who they are. She's done a million and one other amazing things, and now she's here to talk to your girl on the Warrior Her podcast. So please, everybody, welcome Victoria Jen Rodriguez. Hi, so excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you and just there's so many things that you like I didn't mention because I really want to leave a little bit to the imagination for people that are here. So, yes. you know, let's just start at the beginning, though. So where were you born? <laughs> I was born in Brooklyn, New York, East New York. And what was life like growing up in Brooklyn for you? So I was born in Brooklyn, but raised in Queens, did a small stint in Orlando, Uh, but majority of my life, I was raised in Queens and um, life was good. You know, I was raised by a single dad. I was a big time daddy's girl, still am a big time daddy's girl. And he made sure that I was um, spoiled (laughs) and that I, um, I didn't need for anything. And it was very interesting because as you get older, you start to understand like the class system and you kind of understand like where you really were when you were growing up. And it was so interesting as an adult to learn that as a kid, like I thought I had everything, literally anything I wanted, I got. But in the scheme of things, you know, we were um, we were probably on the cusp of um kind of middle income. Um, but as a kid, I thought we were rich. Do you think that your dad did that intentionally? I think that my dad, um, so all right, we're going to get all into it, girl. We're going to get into (laughs) it. So the way that I was born, um, so my mother was married. My father was married they both cheated on their spouses and had me. So I was a love child. 
And the story goes that at first, my father didn't even want to have me because he was married, he had a whole family and he was nervous. He was just like, no, you shouldn't have the baby. But my mother wasn't having it. She was like, I'm having this baby. And supposedly when he came to the hospital and he saw me, his heart melted and the rest is history. My mother named me after my father. So my father's name is Victor and I'm Victoria. Uh, and she did that purposely uh, because she wanted to make sure that my dad knew like, this is a bond that you will not be able to ignore. Um, and you know, ever since my dad, um, my mom and my dad tried to make it work, didn't work. And I decided I wanted to go live with my father. My father raised me since I was about nine on his own. And do you have any other siblings then? I do. I have three sisters and a, no, I have four sisters and a brother. So my brother's older, I have two older sisters and two younger sisters. And were you around them a lot when you guys were children because of the, the situation that you guys like? Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting family dynamic, as you can imagine. Um, I grew up mainly with one of my sisters who came from my mother's previous marriage um, and that's also an interesting story. So my sister is black, um, her father's black and we share the same mother, my father's Puerto Rican. Um, and we grew up together for pretty much the majority of our lives until my sister turned about 16 and then she went to go live with her dad. Okay. And so did you always know that this was like, that your, your parents kind of were in the together when they weren't? you know, quote unquote, supposed to be together? Uh, I learned all of that, um, like the details of it all when I got older and started asking questions. So I would say around like my early 20s is when I started to ask a lot of questions. But my father and my mother always had a great relationship. Like even after they broke up, um, they had a really good co-parenting relationship. So it never felt like, I needed to probe because everything was cool. But when I got older, I felt like, okay, hold on. This is like, I need, I need more of the details around this. And now were you are, were you already in college during this point when you started kind of figuring out some of your family history? I was, I was, yes. And you went to college. Is it called Baruch college? Am I it's called right? Baruch. Baruch. Uh, Baruch. Okay. Yes. It's, um, under CUNY, which is a city university under um, in the city of New York. And I was just having this conversation the other day that guidance counselors in high school are really, um, they have a lot of responsibility. Like I had no exposure to what an Ivy League school was. And I blame that a lot on my guidance counselor because I had the grades. I had the grades to go wherever I wanted and I just didn't know. And I'm the first one in my family to go to college. And so I had nobody to tell me otherwise. And so whatever my guidance counselor presented to me is, is what I went with, right? Because um, I was looking to her for guidance and I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and so I would say the most, like it was between Pace and Baruch. Those were the two schools that I was, um, I was considering. Um, and I decided to go to Baruch because I got a full scholarship um, and it was known for finance, which is what I wanted to do at the time. 
So that's how I ended up there. Now, this is slightly off of the topic, but since we're talking about guidance counselors and school, do you think because of the area that you came from, Ivy League schools weren't talked about because, do you think the counselors automatically write you off? Or do you think that they just don't know because they don't know? I mean, if they're a guidance counselor and they don't know what Ivy League schools exist, um, they shouldn't have their job, in my opinion. Um, I think it had to do with, you know, I grew up, like I said, and on the cusp of middle income. And I think that they, you know, at that time, I think, you know, students of color were treated differently. And I think that the one thing she did tell me was I should go away to school. She did say that. She was like, you should go away. You should go live on campus. Um, you should have that experience. She did tell me that. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe it was a, a principal thing. I don't know. But I do know that this is going on in inner city schools where guidance counselors are not really telling kids what their full load of options are. They're kind of handpicking where they think they should go. And as a result, if you really think about it, like the long-term effects of that, what does that look like? I mean, I turned out okay, but maybe I should have been exposed to a completely different environment at a younger age. And who knows where I would be today, you know? So they really have a lot of control over your kid's future. That's why if you're a parent, you should make sure that you are heavily involved in your children's education because if you leave it up to somebody else, you know, they obviously don't have the same best interests as heart as you would as their parent. And it's up to you as their parent to be educated on your own so that if your kid is a superstar in school, that their options are not limited. They can go wherever the hell they want. Well, and I think, you know, there's so many points to that. So I was lucky enough that I worked in the school district and lucky enough that I, I happen to work with children with disabilities. So even advocating for them even more because they have double, <laughs> double the barriers as us as minorities. Um, but we're so old fashioned the way we do things in school systems. So one, that was why I couldn't stay there. It wasn't it wasn't open enough and progressive enough for me to, I feel like I can make a bigger impact outside of the school system doing things and exposure, right? And I think that's an important one. One of the schools I worked at was a Title I school and I happened to work with all the students who were bad, right? The behavioral yeah. students who had so much grit and, you know, their life circumstances had them, you know, were academically, it just wasn't important, but exposing them to what's actually possible is very important to me. And yeah. it's something that teachers, unfortunately, there's a, they have a hard job. I'm not saying that, please don't come for me. <laughs> yes, they have a hard job. However, exposure is important and I don't believe in I can't. And so they might not fit in the mold of school, but what else, what can they do? Like, <laughs> I had a kid who was like talking to me, but he was like, um, I steal from the rich white people. He would tell me that. And I was like, honey, you don't have to steal from the rich white people. What do you want that they have that you can meet, that you can get? Right. Let's show you. And he was like, oh, I just sell drugs and I'm, 
I'm like, listen, like my teachers, my principal would probably hate me for saying this now, but I'm like, let's look, let's set up some financial understanding of what you think this drug money is actually going to do for you. Mm-hmm. This, this $2,000 that you might have, you know, like, oh, I'm going to buy a house and I'm going to, and I'm like, no, you're not like, look what you can do, you know, and I, that's a whole nother thing that I feel like we could talk about for probably hours and hours is the school system and minority kids and how we're set up and just not being exposed. And then you're written off because, oh, he's a bad kid or she's a bad kid or whatever. And it's like, well, let's really look at what's going on in their life and see how we can fill in those gaps and show up for them instead of treating them like, well, they're just another kid. They probably won't go anywhere. Like that's one of my least favorite things is trying to predict the outcome of how someone's going to turn out. I, I hated when, when teachers would say that, like, oh, he's not going to be anything anyway. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know right. we could, we could see the future that way, but you got it figured out, <laughs> right? You got it figured out. So you go to school for finance. Yes. Why? Well, I go to school for finance because um, I wanted to make money. I wanted to have stability. I wanted to, you know, the concept of money was just very, was a key driver. And it was also what I was exposed to. Um, You know, it was kind of like what I was exposed to the most in school. And it was just like, all right, well, this looks like the short ticket to start making some big money. So this is what I'm going to do. And so that's what I did. And what was your idea? Do you remember at the time of like what big money meant to you? Um, I didn't have like a number in mind. Uh, I just wanted to make money. That was kind of like the thinking like, okay, V, what's the quickest way for you to make money? Wall Street finance. And I would take all these like tours of like the trading floor and I would go into these rooms that would have like lined up trading desks and I, and it was just all so sexy to me and it was just so intriguing to me and I was like huh I can do this like this is something that I can do um and I can make money hmm. this is what I want to do um and it was interesting because I was like that until about my junior year Uh, after I had an internship on Wall Street, after I had a full-time offer waiting for me after school, it was when I started to think about like, I want to do something deeper. I want to do something beyond just finance. Like, I just don't want to make money. I want to do something more. Like, I need something deeper. Um, But at that time, I had already set myself up um, to do the finance thing. So I was still going to do the finance thing. But I remember uh, talking to friends like, this ain't it. But I'm going to do it because the objective is to make money. And so I did. And when you would take tours on those on the floor in the in, in this like stock exchange and stuff, like. Did you see a lot of women? No, I didn't see a lot of women. Um, I saw a lot of white men. Uh, and you know what? At the time, it really didn't stick out to me in the way that it would today. Like today, I noticed right away. Today, I noticed right away if I'm the only woman, if I'm the only woman of color. I noticed how many white men are in the room. I noticed how many black people are in the room. 
but at but back then I really didn't notice it at all and it really didn't it really didn't uh it really didn't hinder me or inspire me to do one thing or another um I will say that when I was in college I did meet one of my um most amazing mentors who essentially became my second mom who had a woman's organization called 100 Hispanic Women. And working with her in my early years of college really started to put me onto this woman thing and why I needed to be mindful of, um, you know, how many women of color in the room and, and just really wrapping my head around all of that. Because prior to that, you know, I really didn't experience racism. I really, um, you know, always had a diverse group set of friends. My sister was black. My, my dad was Spanish, I had white friends. So it wasn't, I never felt like diversity was at the forefront versus now. It's a much different world that we live in, right? Do you think that diversity is more important now because we've made it important? Yes, absolutely. And then at the time when you saw all those white men, do you think that if that it's possible that if you would have put any more thought really into it, whether there was more women or not enough women or any minority, more minority people there that it, it could have hindered you? Well, I have a story to share with you, which was like my first, I would say, lesson on how men thought women need to speak and show up. So it was, I would say, um, I can't remember, was that when I was interning or if it was when I was already working there, but I was at Lehman Brothers and a mentor of mine had me shadow this guy on one of the trading desks. And so I'm sitting there listening to the banter back and forth, the conversation, they are cursing like sailors, okay? Cursing crazy, it's like exciting, it's fun. And I'm in conversation with him and I said the word shit. I don't remember in what context, but I said the word shit and I thought everything was gravy. I meet with my mentor who put me in that position and she was like, hey, you know, they really enjoyed um, spending time with you, but they did share that you cursed and they felt that that was inappropriate. And it was my first time that I was like, how are they saying it was inappropriate when they were cursing up a storm? Like, I'm not a little kid. I'm an adult. They're an adult they are exposing me to this norm. Like, why, why is that an issue? And it was the first time that I felt like, oh, they didn't like me cursing because I'm a woman. And that really like opened my eyes um, and, and stayed with me till this day. Um, Cause I thought it was, it was a very interesting lesson at the time. Um, and just really was the beginning of my journey of understanding the dynamics between men and women. Why do you think that they, that they like kind of felt like, do you think they felt intimidated or? No, I think it was just because I was a woman, I was young and they felt it was inappropriate. Hmm. Okay. So you go to school you get your, you do graduate. Yep. And it's in finance. Yep. And finance. Yep. And for people who are listening and maybe they don't actually know what is a, a, a bachelor's in finance encompass? Like, what does that allow you to do? 
Uh, so it was a bachelor in finance and investments. And essentially what it was, it was, um, it was a combination of a business degree and you understanding financial markets. That's like the most simplified way I can explain it. That's easy enough. That makes sense, I think. Yeah. Um, so you're what, 22 at this time? 22? Just about, yeah. Okay. Now, from what point there does, does VJR come into play? So VJR comes into play about 15 years later. Um, so I spent 15 years in the corporate sector. I worked on Wall Street. I worked in uh, consumer product goods, healthcare. I worked on legislation. Um, and I did that for about 15 years. And I worked on talent management, inclusion, and diversity later on in my career. Uh, Before you keep going, yeah. does it bother you that we have to talk about inclusion and diversity at all as minorities? Does it bother me? Uh, no, it doesn't bother me. I think it's, 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 it's a necessity. We need to talk about it as much as possible. Quite frankly, I think the fact that we haven't spoken about it as vocally as we are now is the reason why we're still in the situation that we're in. Okay. I was curious because Sometimes I feel like it, it feels like that could box us. Like it's almost like we're always, we're always the ones talking about it. And I feel like, I don't know if I just want, you know, feel like we need a little bit more allyship. You know, Amanda Seals talks about that a lot. It's like, it's, it's a little tiring, you know, okay, I gotta be the woman in the room. I'm the minority woman in the room, not the angry black woman. And like, I have an opinion. I'm not angry. And I just, yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of, of minority women who are like continuously advocating for diversity and inclusion. And I, I feel like, I don't know if I'm, I'm like 50, 50 on it. I feel like, like, I'm like, yes, we're doing it. And then also like, why is it only us? Yeah. Uh, I, I hear you. And I think that's a fair point. And I think, allyship is now being celebrated in ways that it wasn't celebrated before. Uh, so I feel like there are more people um, participating, but you know, it's a long fight. It's not going anywhere. And you know, our ancestors were tired. All right. Trucking all those damn miles to get across state lines. All right. So we all have to do the work. And until it's done, we can't give up. Yeah. Have you read The Magic of Thinking Big? No. Okay. I'll have to send that book to you. It's okay. an amazing Thank book. Um, okay. I, I'm pretty sure it was actually a white man that wrote it. And it was okay. in like the 50s. So definitely just, but the, the, the overall message is just, is really good. And he, he kind of touches on some of these topics that, in like a vague way. It just, it's really good. It made me think of it as you were, as you were talking. Um, okay. So you, you, you're in corporate America. Yes. For 15 years. Yes. And then why step out on your own? Well, it happened kind of, um, serendipitously because I, uh, my last corporate job, I was at Johnson and Johnson where I headed up talent management and, they laid me off 
and I was going on, you know, it was never my desire to leave corporate. Corporate and I got along very fine. I would travel on the corporate dime. I would get trained on the corporate dime. Like I was making a lot of money, like corporate and I, we were good. Um, but after the J&J job, I was going on a whole bunch of interviews. I was making it to final round and I wasn't closing. And I was like, why the hell am I not closing? Like I'm a closer, what is happening here? And I took it as a sign from the universe to just bet on myself. I had started my business as a side hustle at, when I was still in corporate. So I had gotten my feet wet a little bit. And then after I wasn't able to like close the deal on these interviews, I was like, you know what, V, you have savings, you have a skill set. Why don't you see what happens and bet on yourself? Worst case scenario, you can always go back to corporate. Um, you have options. So do it, right? There's no regrets. Just do it. Because if you don't do it, you're always going to wonder like, what if, what maybe? And so I did it. Um, and four years later, I'm still doing it. And four years later, it is still the hardest thing that I have ever done. I am still, you know, figuring it out. I definitely made strides, um, but I, I'm still waiting. Like every entrepreneur has, uh, has a journey and some find that niche, that magic where it like comes earlier than others. And some have a journey and a process that is longer than others, right? And so I think for me, it's been very much about, you know, without the journey, there is no promise. Um, and so kind of discovering myself on that journey has been one of the most rewarding things that you could never get from a corporate experience. When you decided to, to start it, mm -hmm. can you just kind of give us some insight on what that experience was like. When I decided to start it, when I decided to start it, I was really excited. I was like, oh my God, like I got my own business. Like, this is really cool. And, um, you know, I would spend hours. I created my own website. I was recording videos. I had this energy that was just like through the roof um, because it was exciting. It was new. Um, you know, I wasn't, feeling much of the pressures or anything like that because it was so new and I had stability with my savings. So it was just like this high vibe, gonna get it done, the world at my fingertips kind of feeling. Now, do you, do you recommend, you know, anyone who's listening that's interested in starting a business to have like a cushion like that, you know, to where they can breathe a little bit when they're first starting their business? Yes. And I know some would argue on that because they feel like that cushion would make you complacent. But there's so many things that come up when you start your business, if you're doing it the right way, that having to worry about how you're going to feed yourself or feed your family is a distraction that I feel that energy can be placed somewhere else. And some might argue that type of responsibility will be fuel. So it's really a matter of knowing yourself enough to know what are your triggers, what makes you move, um, what makes you the most productive. For me, 
even to this day, I will never live on my friend's couch for my business. It's not the lifestyle I want. And I always promise myself that you want to go on this entrepreneur journey? Cool. Do what you got to do. But I'm never going to give up my lifestyle. That's something that I'm never going to do. Um, and if that means that, you know, my entrepreneurship journey is short-lived, then it's short-lived. But that's the type of entrepreneur I am. I'm not going to be on somebody's couch. It's just not in me because the business that I'm in is very much about inspiration. It's very much about mindset. It's very much about motivation. It's very much about becoming the best version of myself, of yourself. And I can't be the best version of myself on my friend's couch. And so, so tell us too, you know, what is BJR? BJR are the initials of my name. So Victoria Jen Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. And tell us, so tell us what the company is. So it's a consulting company uh, that works both with businesses and consumers. So on the B2B side, I work with organizations to help them attract, develop, and retain talent, aka their employees. So I build out campaigns around leadership development programs, um, inclusion and diversity consulting, executive coaching, um, and really just positioning organizations to be an employer of choice. So once they attract talent to come and work for them, how are they actually keeping them there? Um, and so that's what I focus on on that end. On the B2C side, business to consumer side, I do coaching, right? So I work a lot with women around um, actually helping them get clarity around entrepreneurship, helping them make the transition from corporate to entrepreneurship, um, helping them master their mindset and their confidence and also selling to corporate as well as selling to government agencies. And with the mindset part, right? Yeah. What do you find is the biggest hurdle? Uh, ourselves. <laughs> so we are, so many of us are standing in our own way uh, because we are scared. We are scared of our own potential and we are scared of the unknown and the ambiguity of things. Do you think that that's easy to grasp, to like, to show someone that they're in their own way? Um, it's, so a lot of people know that they're in their own way. Um, I would say that the majority of the people that I, I work with, they're aware, they're self-aware, they know that they stand in their own way, which is, which is why they come to work with me because they wanna get the hell out of their own way. Um, but that takes a level of maturity, which is why I work with, uh, which is why I work with folks who have, a, who have more seasonality to them. Um, so they have a few years of experience under their belt. I, I like that word. Seasonality. If you're listening, that means you're an adult. <laughs> you have arrived at the point that you know you're full of shit and right. you have accepted that you are full of shit and that is why you are are in the place you're in exactly and it's actually very funny because I was having this conversation last night with my husband and we were talking about finances and we were talking about um I had a business I had a gym and it was more of a woohoo I can have a gym with nothing else just I can do it 
Um, Mm. No plan, no financial plan, no business plan, no marketing plan, no plan. Just, woo, I can do it. Yeah, no, you can't dummy. (laughs) And uh, it was just a very real conversation of like, I'm here because of the choices I've made. And although that's a tough place to be in, if you're listening, because there's no one, there's no fingers anymore, you know? Oh, it was the gym. It was you. It was my husband. It was, oh, I have kids. No, it's me. Right. And uh, I like that though, seasonality. I'm going to have to use that. I'm just going to say I'm I'm seasoned now, people. So leave me alone. (laughs) Leave me alone in a few months. Exactly. (laughs) And then do you work with women and men? So I work, um, I recently I've niched down just to women, but sometimes men do come to me um, and they ask if we can work together and for the right client uh, and the right price, we make it happen. And why do you feel like it's important for you to work with women? Well, I... um, I have always been very passionate about passionate about women initiatives from the time that I met that mentor that took me under her wing. And I just feel like women are still fighting a fight that they shouldn't have to. And we also go through a lot of a lot more than men, in my opinion, in terms of the workplace, in terms of our position in society, uh, our families um our friendships our businesses and so I want to I want that to be a part of my legacy I want my legacy to very much speak to the evolvement and evolution of money of women and how do you so how do you determine the pricing of services that you're providing either b2b or b2c going to pivot a little bit from that. <laughs> yeah. So um, pricing is very much correlated to your worth and how you want to be perceived in the market. And also understanding um, what is the market rate, right? So a great place to start is speaking to people in the space and asking them what's their pricing structure, what's their model, doing research, figuring out what's the market rate, and then deciding for yourself, given your expertise, what are you going to price yourself at? Which is another reason why I niche down on women. Women have a very difficult time talking about money, asking for the money that they deserve. They usually are discounting themselves all the time. And you need someone like me in your life that's going to tell you Fuck all that. I'm sorry. I hope I can curse on your yes. podcast. <laughs> um, you know, ask for a top dollar. Always, my rule of thumb is always ask for 10 to 15, 15% more of what your bottom line is, what you're going in for. Because everybody's going to try and negotiate you down. Everybody's in the business of paying less and getting more. And so with that in mind, you need to understand that you need to give yourself enough negotiation room um, where you still get, you know, the bottom line that you're going after. But if you come in at a low number, you're just going to continue to go lower and lower and lower because somebody's still going to try to negotiate you at a lower number. 
So it's in your best interest to go in at least 10 to 15% higher so that they can negotiate you down because they will try to negotiate you down. So do you think that women, like we struggle with asking for what we want because we don't believe that we're worth it? Absolutely. That's exactly why. (laughs) It's that it's also being preconditioned that, you know, to believe that, um, you're undeserving of, of big money. Um, you might come from a family that doesn't have a lot of money. And so, you know, talking about money is taboo, um, or asking for a lot of money is taboo. Uh, and so it's almost, you know, women have to do a lot of retraining on how they think about money because of how they were raised and where they came from culturally. There are a lot of influences um, that hold women back. And so all of that comes into play in the workplace, whether you're asking for a salary or you are putting a price tag on one of your services, it plays a role. And so women have a lot of uh, unpacking to do when it comes to that. And so it's really important for the work that I do to make sure women understand that, oh, you're worth it. And you're actually worth 10 times more than that. So start asking for it. I love that. And to bring it back to kind of what we we're talking about earlier about like allies and stuff. Yeah. Um, I had a white male coworker, um, in the field that I had worked with. And he was very transparent. He was like, listen, I'm getting six figures. So when you're licensed, you better get six figures. Exactly. He's like, ask for it. I was like, no one else is telling me about this. No one else is talking to me about this. Like, he's like, you need to ask for that, period. Because if I can get it, there's no reason you can't get it. I'm the same training as you, the same amount of, of, you know, experience. And then um, I had a recent, a funny situation, I guess it would be called the situation. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to plan these at sea events. And um, the person that I am planning on doing them with, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to need some contracts outlined for not only between us, right? How what's expected of you, what's expected of me, and then also the people that I'm going to get to come on these events, I have, you know, they're my relationships which are worth more than the money itself. And so I need to have an outline for them as to how they're going to be paid, when they're going to be paid, what they're expected to do, what they're not. And he was like, oh, I don't really think we need to make it that serious. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that doesn't sit right with me. Um, But there was a brief hesitation for a moment and I feel like this is important because I don't want the, pe- the women listening to forget. I still felt like, oh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm like rubbing him the wrong way. You know, maybe I'm asking for too much. And then I was like, no, I'm not. Because every podcast I listen to, all these business owners, anyone successful, they're not going to meetings and, and agreeing to things and just like, yeah, I'll do this for you without that. Put it in writing or don't talk to me. Absolutely. Always. Everything in writing. And, you know, it was just, I I feel like that's an important point that it's still going to be, it's still a challenge. And um, I have since kind of realized I, I don't, first, I wanted to also 
add like to negotiate that. Cause then I said, well, um, you know, it's important for me to have these things in place so that there's, there's no misunderstanding. And it was like, oh, okay, that's fine. It just rubbed me the wrong way. And I was like, should I keep doing business with this person or should I just find someone else? And I think that that may be something that you work with women on is that part. Totally. I mean, a lot of women, they struggle with knowing when to walk the hell away (laughs) and when to know, like, you're allowed to say, I don't want to go into business with you. I don't think this is going to work. Like, you're allowed to say that. You're allowed to set boundaries. You're allowed to make decisions. You don't have to do anything you don't want to. And one of the most advantageous things that women have is our intuition. Our intuition, our gut feeling, boy. My husband was like, oh, babe, it's not that. It's probably nothing. I was like, listen to me. He's doing a large event with Turo, okay? A large event with Turo. I know you didn't go to the people at Turo and tell them you didn't have contracts. I know you didn't. Right. And so that that's a problem to me. Right. Like, don't, don't treat me like I'm some dummy. Right. I mean, but listen, business is business and people are going to try to take advantage of you. But, you know, that's why you have to be smart enough to say like, no, this ain't going to work for me. I'm going to keep it moving. Best of luck with you, but I'm going to do me and you do you and walk away. Like we have to be confident enough to do that. I love that. I love that. So four years later, right? Um, What have you learned in those four years in a nutshell? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of things. What have I learned in those four years? Um, I have learned that I truly am the architect of my destiny, which means that, and this might sound very cliche, but it is very, very true, that I have the power to make my life whatever I desire it to be. And it's a matter of how much work I want to put in. That is going to determine how much I get out, period. There's no secret sauce. There's no secret formula. There's no quick pass, go, get all the way to the home run. Nope. It is literally, what is your work ethic? How disciplined are you? What sacrifices are you willing to make? And that is what will equal where you end up in life, period. I love that. Um, I just saw a quote that said, um, you're born looking like your mother and father but you die looking like the, the decisions that you made. Mm-hmm. And I just recently lost my grandmother who raised me. And um, it was a very, very, just any, I, I believe when you have children, if you have children and you're listening and when you lose people who are close to you, those are the two big factors that can jolt you into progress or failure. Mm -hmm. And um, for anyone who is listening that may resonate with this, I just, I think it's very important that you can choose whatever you want and it is a choice and it's scary and it's uncomfortable 
and you're going to doubt it. But like she said, you can, you can do it. It's just, what are you going to give up? But also what are you going to gain if you give up these perceived things that you're even giving up? Right. You know, what are you going to actually gain rather than give up? Right. And yeah, that's so great. And who is your ideal client? My ideal client is a woman who is ready, who is ready to put in the work, who is ready to do the ugly work, who is ready to be challenged and who is ready to do whatever she needs to do to get where she's trying to go. That's it. She just got to be ready. And so what if you have a woman who comes to you and says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm ready, um, but I can't afford you. Well, you're not ready or. So here's the thing. So I operate at a premium and I operate at a premium because I've worked my ass off to operate at a premium. Mm-hmm. And I also know the power of my coaching. And I know that if you listen where I will get you and that comes with a premium price tag. So if you're ready and you can't afford me, then you're not ready because someone who is ready will find the money and they will figure it out or they will get creative and they will attend my free webinars They will listen to me on Clubhouse. They will listen to all of my podcasts. They will comment on my pictures on Instagram. They will try to build a relationship with me because then they know like, oh, well, if she sees that I'm proactive, she might engage with me more, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, people assume that if they can't afford something, then that's it. I can't do anything. There's no point of me continuing on. When really what this all boils down to is relationships. Like if I had a woman in my, in, in my community who was showing up every single time, who was going out of her way to invite people into conversations, who was commenting on all my stuff, who was literally following my career, who was doing blog posts about me, you know, just showing that love and showing that commitment. And I knew that she want, and I know that she wants to work with me. I might work with her for free because of her proactiveness and her being creative and her wanting to build a relationship. Um, but you know, that depends on what's going on. I don't want to encourage anybody. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's going to come. But what I'm saying is the takeaway is, is just because you can't afford something doesn't mean you should give up, figure it out, figure out how you can make it happen. Yeah. I think that's also, you know, as we kind of wrap up, it's a big point is it's one of the things of why I don't, I don't like to say can't. Yeah. Because can't is so final. And it means that there's also no creativity that's going to go behind it because you already said, I can't work with Victoria. So right. I guess it's just over. Right. How can I do it? What do I need to do? I need to work extra shifts. Right. And again, talking about the sacrifice, is it really a sacrifice or is it an investment, which I think also goes into the whole mindset of yourself and what you are saying that you're worth as a person. Am right. I worth this investment in working with you? If I truly believe you're going to get me where, 
you're going to help me get what I want. Right. Is there a dollar amount that even matters? I don't know. You know, that's only a question you have listening. If, if that, if that even matters, is it $50? Is it $5,000? 50,000, 50 million? You know, what, what is it? <laughs> what is it? So, um, you know, tell the listeners as well where they can find you on social media. So you can find me at I am the letter I am Victoria Jen, J-E-N-N, pretty much on all platforms. So Instagram, Clubhouse, um, LinkedIn is my full name, Victoria Jen Rodriguez. Um, So is Facebook. But if you just pull up, I am Victoria Jen, you'll see all my stuff come up. And then can you give the ladies who are listening and maybe a little few men that might be listening um, three pieces of advice on doing what you're doing? Three pieces of advice on doing what I'm doing in terms of what? So like if they want to start a business or if they want to change their mindset or if they're just looking for something different what would you, what would you say? Uh, well, my first piece of advice is slow down and write down what you want. A lot of folks don't know what they want. They're going by what they see on social media, by what they think they're supposed to do, or they're supposed to want instead of really identifying what it is that they want. So slow down, Take the time to figure out what you want. Once you figure out what you want, then I want you to figure out, well, what do I need to do to get it? Do the research, talk to whoever you need to talk to to figure out what you need to do to go from point A to point B, right? Then once you figure that out, execute. Even if you don't know what the hell you're doing, just do. You will figure it out as you go you'll make mistakes, you're supposed to make mistakes. That is when you're gonna learn the most about yourself. That is when you're gonna learn the most about your work ethic, um, about your resiliency, and also about your mindset. And so slow down, identify what you want, figure out the steps you need to take in order to get what you want, then execute. This has been a power hour for sure. Thank you very much for just honestly taking any time, any of your time, you're, you're busy. You could be doing anything on a Saturday morning and you're talking to me and and sharing all these, this valuable information with all these women who are listening. So thank you very much for, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm going to, Thanks for listening to the Warrior Her podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another fun episode. Go like, subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes. Until next time, Warriors, remember, girls really do run the world.